Meanwhile, David had gone to Mahanaim, where while Absalom, all the men of Israel had crossed the Jordan River. And Absalom had made Amasa general in command of the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of an Israelite man named Jether, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, and sister of Zeruah, Joab's mother. The army of Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. So now where does David go? He goes to the old palace of Ishbosheth. Notice these huge role reversals. In the beginning, David was king in Hebron, and at Ishbosheth, the false king was king in Mahayam and Gilead. Now, Absalom goes to Hebron and then Jerusalem, and David's going to the old palace of Ishbosheth. And so everything's flipping here. It's a total role reversal of what's happening here. Then we're told that Joab is staying loyal to David. That's interesting. Who wanted to bring Absalom back and make him king? Joab. But now that Absalom is becoming king, Joab's like, no, I'm with you, David. Probably because who is David who is Joab first and foremost loyal to? David. Himself, yes. And then David. Yes. Himself and then David. Can you imagine Job? Oops. I'm the one that used that crappy wisdom and flattered you and tried to and pushed Absalom right back into your face and your palace. And now this is all happening kind of because of me. And so now we're seeing this. That's that's the result of bad wisdom. It's the result of ungodly wisdom. It's a result of not going to God and asking, what should I do with my son? If God said forgive them, then fine. If God says kill them, do it. And so Job is with David. So Absalom needs to find a new general, and he appoints Amasa. Now, did you get that relational connection? <laughs> Basically, he's a relative of Joab, who is a relative of David. All these people are related to each other, because that's how tribal systems work. Keeping it all in the family. So Amasa is the new general for Absalom. You need to remember that name because he's going to become key later. He's not going to have a huge role in these stories like Joab has had, but he is going to have a significant role later. Verse 27. When David came to Mahaniam, Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabbaah of the Ammonites, Machir, the son of Hamil from Lo, Tabir, and Barzillia, the Gilead, from Rogelium, brought bedding, basins, pottery, and utensils. They also brought food for David and all who were with him, including wheat and barley, and roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, flocks, cheese. For they said the people are no doubt hungry, tired, and thirsty there in the desert. Now Barzillia is the leader of these people in the Gilead region where David is. And knows that the first thing that Barzillia does is he decides to gather a bunch of people around him and they come to David and they just bring all of this food and stuff to David to try to take care of him and all of his friends, family, and soldiers that are with him. And this is key too, because the last time David was on the run and asked for help, he went to Nabal and Nabal refused it. And David was tempted to go into mercenary mode. Now David's gone out and he's on the run and David hasn't asked for it this time but has been volunteered by a man by the name of Barzillia and the listing of things is practically the same thing that David asked for from Nabal. And God has taken care of him 
He's brought a man into his life to help take care of him. So God is taking care of him. He's answering David's prayers. He's protecting him. He's brought him. And even though David is outside the land, he is being taken care of by Yahweh. And Yahweh is taking care of him. Chapter 18, verse 1. David assembled the army that was with him. He appointed leaders of thousands and leaders of hundreds. And David then sent out the army, a third under the leadership of Joab, a third under the leadership of Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zariah, and a third under the leadership of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the troops, I too will indeed march out with you. So he's divided his army. The two scumbags that he can't get rid of, or they're convenient to have around. It's always good to have a scumbag around when you don't want to get your hands dirty. And then Ittai, the guy who's actually been the one who's been drawing him back into faith. And then notice, because we're learning our lesson from chapter 11, and I will go with you too. Okay? David's like, I'm not making that mistake again. I'm here now because I didn't go out in the battle the first time. But the soldiers replied, you should not do this. For if we should have to make a rapid retreat, they won't be too concerned about us. Even if half of us die, they won't be too concerned about us. But if you are like the 10,000, are like 10,000 of us. So it's better if you remain in the city for support. And the king said to them, I will do whatever seems best to you. Now this time their advice is to not go with him. Now, in some ways, this is good advice because things are different now. In a normal situation, if a king goes off into battle against another king of another nation, and that king dies in battle, what will happen after that king's death? It'll go to his son. The kingdom is not completely lost because the king dies in battle. Because he has a son who will take the throne from him. A son that he's been training and discipling and and co-reigning with and all that kind of stuff. But this is different now. Because this time the enemy that you're fighting against is your son. And if you go on to battle against the opposing king, your son, and you die in battle, who does it automatically go to? Your son. That means all the people that have died in battle fighting for you is complete loss. You see, if I die in battle in the previous scenario, fighting for my king and my kingdom, my death is not a complete loss if the kingdom is still being run by a whole bunch of people in his family. But if I die in this battle, and he dies too, then everything I was fighting for is a complete waste. And this is different because in normal battles, losses don't automatically default to opposing kings unless that king wins so thoroughly that he comes and wipes everything out. But in this case, it's not wise. So he basically says everybody wants to kill you because that's automatic checkmate. And they, it's, it's everything. They gain everything. So no, no, no. This is not wise for you to go into battle this one time. So the king stayed behind in the city gate, and while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands, the king gave this order to Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. For my sake, deal gently with the young man Absalom. Now the entire army was listening when the king gave all the leaders this order concerning Absalom. He says, whatever you do, don't harm my son. 
I mean, I think it's understood that if he dies naturally in battle through random swords and arrows, it's one thing. But if you capture him, then please do not harm him. Bring him back to me. And it's very important for you to understand the narrator says every single soldier heard this command. Then the army marched out in the field to fight against Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And the army of Israel was defeated there by David's men. And the slaughter there was great that day. 20,000 soldiers were killed. And the battle there was spread out over the whole area. And the forest consumed more soldiers than the sword devoured that day. It mentions that David is defeating Israel. And you're like, wait, wait a minute. Isn't everything Israel? Yes, except for when they split. Remember we talked about way before in the beginning of the book that when Saul took the throne and everybody was running, when David was running away from Saul, where did David mostly hang out in? Judah. Because David is from Judah. And David is loyal to Judah and Judah has been loyal to David. And he felt safer there. So he spent most of his time building relationships, trusting in them and depending upon them as he ran away. Meanwhile, Saul had most of the support of the ten tribes in the north. And the dividing line is right before, below, below Jerusalem. Pretty much all the land south of Jerusalem belongs to Judah, according to God giving it to them. All the land north of Jerusalem was divided among all the other tribes, according to God. And so when David spent most of his time in Judah being a Judaite, which is natural, trusting Judah more, which is natural because of his family, they then joined him, which is natural, but they also developed a trust and rapport with each other. When David finally became king because Saul was dead, he didn't go back to Israel like he was supposed to, and Ishbosheth took the throne. Ishbosheth kept the loyalty of the ten tribes of the north, because not only had David not spent much time up there on the Ron, but they also looked at them and said, There you go, he's in Philistia when he should be here. And so this natural political line has begun to divide between the north and the south. So he becomes king. And instantaneously everybody in the north is like, We're with you, we love you. We realize all those years that Saul was king it was really you giving us victories. Yeah. The minute his son starts campaigning for the throne and then takes it, who automatically sides with him? All the ten tribes in the north. It splits exactly where it did before. Why? It split there the first time because David was in Philistia instead of being in Israel. Not trusting God. Not being in the land where he belongs. Why is it split there a second time? Because his son is a murderer who should have been prosecuted for the murder. Instead, he was apathetically and did not deal with it. And then his son campaigned for the throne against him. And he didn't do anything about it. And then when he, his son took the throne from him, he left the land. And now it's splitting there again. Then when we get to the book of Kings, Solomon is going to really oppress the ten tribes, big time. But he's not going to oppress Judah as much. And when God says, fine, at this point when you die because of your idolatry and worshiping other idols, I'm no longer going to give the kingdom to you. 
But for the sake of David and my covenant with him, I'll let you keep one tribe, Judah, but all the rest go with the next king, who's going to be Jeroboam. And it's going to split in the exact same place. Why? Because Solomon oppressed the people more there than he did in the south. Just like these consequences are all happening to David right now, his family falling apart because he's a bad father, natural human responsibility reaping his own consequences, but they're also happening in him because God ordained that this would happen through his own sovereignty. And the ordination of God and the human responsibility and free choice of people are all coming together. And the same way God's going to say, I'm going to split the kingdom because of your sins, but it's going to split on the exact line that David's lack of trust in God and his lack of obedience has caused twice and Solomon another time. And it's going to be natural human responsibility consequences from free choice in connection to the ordained, the ordained will of God. And you see all these stories over and over again where you see the ordination of God, the providence of God working hand in hand with our own free choice and our own responsibilities. And they're coming together. And you do God a serious injustice if you try to say it's predestination or free will. It's somehow they're working together. And, and, and God's allowing this to happen because it's his judgment, but it's also happening because these people are reaping the consequences of their own choices over many years. And once again, it all comes down to the fact that we're all making bad choices at different times. But if you're ultimately pursuing God, grace covers a lot of that. And he can bring blessings even in your failure. But if you're not pursuing God, then he doesn't bring grace into that anymore. And then everything falls apart. And that's something that we, I think we really need to keep in mind. That a lot of things that are happening in our life are really not because we're that amazing. <laughs> even the things that you're able to pull off has a lot to do with your yes. You have been gifted by God with intelligence and skill and wisdom and, and all these things, but those all came to you because God gave them to you. And in combination, I think we can all think about as parents many places that we have failed miserably. And yet somehow God came in with his grace and he protected and wrapped himself around certain things. And really it really is true that every good gift comes from God. And most of the good things that are happening in our lives is because of the blessings and the grace of God and not because I'm all that. Absalom and Hophophel trusted in them being all that and they are going to end in death. David is trusting God and though he should probably end in death, he will not because the grace of God covers that. Does that make sense? And God's taking care of this. This is the way that God operates. Because it really comes down to, are you a man or a woman after God's own heart? Do you pursue God? Yes, you screw up and you make mistakes and you're a bad father, a bad mother, a bad son, a bad spouse, a bad teacher, bad whatever. But in the end, you're on your knees. And if you're that, that's all that matters. Because if you're that, then God can deal with everything else. He can deal with your bad behavior. He can deal with your dysfunctional incompetence. He can deal, he can deal with all that if he has your heart. But you can be the most skilled, talented, beautiful person in the world and not be trusting God, and it will end the same way it has everybody else that was like that. 
And this is what God keeps presenting before us over and over again. So stop trusting in these worldly things and your own skills and stop following those politicians and celebrities who keep throwing that in your face and meanwhile they're inside and dead and have nothing really to give to you. But here's the other thing. The fact that David wins in battle, remember the only way you can succeed in battle is if God is with you. And the only way God is with you is if you are trusting God. And so this shows you that God is with David. And David is trusting God. But the other thing that's interesting here is it says that they killed 20,000 men that day, or 20 regiments. And then it says the forest killed more people than the sword. That means the forest killed at least 11,000 people or 11 regiments. That's a lot of people. So Lord of the Rings and the Ents is real. <laughs> the trees killed more people than the soldiers did. You're like, wait a minute, Corey. That's a little too fancy oriented. No, it's not. How did God defeat Egypt? The plagues, nature, locusts, water, death, plagues, disease, death of animals. Hey, how did he defeat the enemy of the Midianites when Gideon was going against them? He confused them and they began to attack each other. How did he give Barak victory over the enemy? He made the Kishon River flood and wiped them all out. How did he give their times? Storms came down and wiped them all out. God is the creator of nature and us. And his favorite weapon is his creation. And he always uses his creation. Now I'm not saying the trees came alive, but if God can manipulate, if God created nature and spoke it into existence and defined the laws of physics that they all operate on, he can bend them in any moment. And if he can bend them in any moment and make people die and come back to life and resurrections and make storms spontaneously appear and plagues come and that kind of stuff, then he can move branches and roots around in the forest to kill people. And what this is showing is that once again, God is using his creation as his weapon. Because this all belongs to him. He uses Israel as a weapon against the Canaanites. He uses nature as a weapon against different enemies. And now he's using the forest against Absalom. Because this is his thing. All of creation is his. All of creation. And he can do whatever he wants with it. And when he chooses to do something, he uses everything. Look, he's using people. Who's she? He's, he's using circumstances and events to change David. He's using other people, foreigners, Etai. And now he's using nature. He's using all of creation to accomplish his will and purpose. And you need to understand that. It's not just you either. Or it's just you and a few of your family members or friends. When God is with you, he can use all of creation. And he can use the enemies that you think are your enemies. And the good people that are good. And the people that we often look down upon, which would be the foreigner for them. Or the people that we look to. Or he can even use all of nature. He can use whatever he wants and he will use everything to accomplish his will in your life when he wants. And the narrator's making that point because he's been making that point every single book over and over again. But so often we still feel like we're all alone. But the other thing that shows you is God is on his side. 
that the fact that nature was more successful than the men means that God is definitely with David. God is definitely with David, and he's honoring his promises and his covenants. And during this battle, it says, And the army of David grew stronger and stronger and stronger, while Absalom's army began to grow weaker and weaker and weaker. And probably what's happening over time, maybe some people are switching sides because that's who they always go with, the person who's winning the most. Some people might be waking up and realizing, whoa, this is actually not a co-regency. <laughs> this is a son rebelling against his father. I was all for supporting Absalom when he was a co-regency, but now that I realize I've been deceived, and that's not all what he's doing, I don't think I'm for a son rebelling against a father because rebellion is one of the sins that God hates the most. And then maybe there's tons of other reasons, but over time, people begin to switch back over to David, and David begins to grow stronger. And in that moment, David probably is trusting God more and more as he's saying, see, if I only had trusted him for the very beginning. There's no reason to be angst or worried about anything from at all. And God is siding with David. And this is a good, powerful story of that despite God's judgments, he's still with you. And he still can use it all for you. And that this is a good story of a man or a woman realizing they need to come back to God. And when they start coming back to God, the judgments start turning into blessings. And that's, that's how God is. Yeah, God is going to judge him and discipline him and punish him. But the minute that David comes back to him, God starts lessening the judgments. Okay, I won't, I won't put you in timeout as long as I said I was to begin with. I'm not going to ground you as long as I did. I said I would. And we're going to see that in the last chapter of Samuel, we're going to see God saying, I'm going to do this to you. And then when David throws himself at God, he backs off and he lessens the punishment. This is what a relationship with God looks like. At your lowest and your consequences, at your most depressed, if you just trust in God, he will turn judgments into blessings. He will turn a world against you into for you. And everything will begin to slow. And it doesn't mean your life will be happy-go-lucky. This is not super American comfortable right now. But nothing's overtaking him and nothing's destroying him because greater is he who's in you than he is in the world. And the question is, do we really, truly believe that? Chapter 18, verse 9. Then Absalom happened to come across David's men. Now as Absalom was riding on his mule, it went under the branches of a large oak tree, and his head got caught in the oak, and he was suspended in midair, while the mule that he had been riding kept going. One of the reasons that the narrator told you that he had this luscious, long Fabio hair is because it's foreshadowing how in the world can this guy's hair get caught in the branches of the tree. So we see him like the imagery is that he's galloping along as fast as he can, his hair's whipping back in the wind, and he gets caught in the branches. Because we've already read everything is coming, we know two things about this. First, that the reason his hair gets caught in the branches is because God has been manipulating the woods and the forests and the branches. And so that this is God's doing. Very unlikely that he's not seeing that branch coming as he's writing. And so there's a chance that it's probably moved down. The second reason we're being told this is because of the very thing that is made in vain and cocky and arrogant and where he's put all this value and his image and looks and materialism and outward appearance is the very thing that's going to bring his downfall. 
And just like the very beginning of the books of Samuel, we have a man who's stealing from God and eating the food that he's stealing from God, which makes him heavy, which ends up killing him. Now we have this man who's putting all of his value and his beauty and images, and now God's using it to kill him. And so God is using the very thing that has made them sinful. Now remember, God doesn't always kill you in this kind of way. This is not how God typically operates with an everyday normal person. These are people who intentionally put themselves in opposition to God, and they're rebelling against God, and they're basically doing the high-handed sin. Most of the time, God does not bring judgment like this in the everyday normal person. This is the high-handed sin. So he gets caught in this tree. You know this is painful. Now, women can probably relate to this more than men, but if you're galloping along, and, or you're riding on your bicycle as fast as you can, and somebody just grabs your ponytail and just grabs it, and you're being yanked off of that by the roots of your hair, and not only you're caught in the branches that's bouncing, and then you're hanging there for several hours, enough for the messenger to get to Job and Job get back and that kind of stuff. We're talking about really painful experience in your scalp. And like, what shampoo is he using that his roots are that strong? <laughs> Verse 10. When one of the men saw this, he, was report, he reported to Job saying, I saw Absalom hanging in the oak of the tree. And Job replied to the man who was telling him this, What? You saw this? Why didn't you strike him down right on the spot? I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a commemorative belt or a warrior's belt. So, like the WWF wrestling belt. <laughs> Probably smaller. Why didn't you kill him? This is the enemy of Israel. This is a rebellious son. This is the, the, the enemy. Kill him. And then the man replied to Joab, Even if I were receiving a thousand pieces of silver, I would not strike the king's son. In our very presence, the king gave his order to you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. If I had acted at, acted at risk of my own life and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have abandoned me. He says, We all heard David's command. I'm not going to go against the direct command of the king and kill the son. Two, he didn't say this, but this is also called murder when somebody's completely vulnerable and it's not in battle. And three, he basically says, if I would have done that and the king would have attacked me for it, you would have completely abandoned me. You would have never stood by my side as I'm being judged, me and like a nobody or an unnamed soldier. I'd be like wearing the red shirt in Star Trek. Like there's no hope. Job replied, I will not wait around like this for you. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the middle of Absalom while he was still alive in the middle of the oak tree. And then the ten soldiers who were Job's armor bearers struck Absalom and finished him off. Now this is literally overkill. One javelin in the heart is enough. And it's not like he's a moving target. He's hanging there. And so Joab literally takes his three javelins and just plunges one after another after another into Absalom's chest while he's hanging there still alive. The narrator makes it clear that he was still alive because this has become murder. This is not battle. This is not um, self-defense. This is not in the heat of everything. Now granted, according to the law, Absalom's sin of rebellion and murder of his brother is punishable by death. But God also made it clear only after a trial with witnesses and ten elders present. 
and, and evidence. And this is not it. So he thrusts him in, and then he allows ten of his armor bearers to begin to strike him with swords while he hangs there. This is ridiculous. This shows you Joab's violence and actually how he feels about Absalom. Now, I have no idea, but given human nature, maybe there's an overkill here because Job knows that he's responsible for bringing Absalom back. Don't know. But either way, we know Job is a violent man, and he takes the matter in his own hands. Verse 16, Then Job blew the trumpet, and the army turned back from chasing Israel. For Job had called for the army to halt. They took Absalom, threw him into a large pit in the forest, and stacked a huge pile of stones over him. In the meantime, all the Israelite soldiers fled to their homes. Now, this burial is an act of cursing. To basically throw him in the ditch in the middle of the woods, and then just heap rocks on him? This is incredibly disgraceful. If somebody did this to one of your family members after they died, you'd be incredibly offended horrified that anybody would just throw them into the woods and throw rocks on them. Not only that, the only other time we've ever seen rocks being thrown on people is an act of curse. This is done to the Canaanite kings by Joshua after he conquered them, and this is done to Achan as he sinned in the book of Joshua against God. This is a curse. To not be gathered to your fathers and a, the, the burial place of your family is considered very disgraceful and a curse. And this is what he is doing to David's son. And without consulting David in any kind of way. The question is how David's going to respond. Now, typically, David's always respond with total passivity. But now we're not dealing with, I'm willing to punish this unknown guy over here for his crimes, but I'm letting my friend Joab go. Now we're dealing with my son and my nephew. Is that going to change David? Now both of them are his, he plays favorites with. Both of them are in the same pocket. What is David going to do as he responds to this? So the battle is basically halted. It's come to an end. David is the victor, and Absalom's had an unceremonious death. Prior, in the meantime, the Israelites flee to their homes. The Israelites is in the ten tribes in the north that decide with Absalom. They run away. Verse 18. Prior to this, Absalom had set up a monument and dedicated it to himself in the king's valley, reasoning, I have no son who will carry on my name. He named the monument after himself, and to this day is known as Absalom's memorial. Now this is very telling of Absalom's character. There's only one other time in the entire Bible that an Israelite has set up a monument to himself. Who was that? Saul. In this very book, Saul set up a monument to himself. Not only does God completely forbid the building of monuments to yourselves, he completely forbids them being fashioned with your own hands and tools. And this is, a, this is an arrogance. This is to his own glory, his own self. Now his reasoning is his sons are dead, but he has no sons. Now, earlier in Samuel chapter 14, we're told that Absalom had three sons. So they must have died in battle somewhere that the narrator's telling you that he has no sons or died in some other kind of a way. Remember, your sons are the way that you carry, your name is carried on. In the ancient way of thinking, this is how you live forever. 
and they don't know anything about DNA or that kind of stuff, but we can kind of relate to the idea of you living through forever through your sons, through your DNA and that kind of stuff, and your kids being the spinning image of you and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't have that now. And his family line has been wiped out. Maybe this is the judgment of God. I don't know. The narrator doesn't specifically tell you. But either way, he's decided that he needs to find a way for his name to continue on forever. And so he builds a monument to himself. This, once again, directly shows why Absalom's a horrible, horrible pick to um, succeed David as king. And another reason why he deserves to die, because this is a form of idolatry, especially when you're commanded not to make any graven image of anything in the sky or anything in the earth or the sea below. Now, we don't know how much in his image this has been made. We're not describing what it looks like. But it's definitely been made in his image to a certain extent when it's made for him to glorify himself and it's named after him. He has created his own image. And that is not good. And so this is how Absalom dies. And the only thing that is left of Absalom is a statue, which will eventually come to ruin and fade away just like even all the Egyptian monuments that they've made themselves and are basically just some kind of random face in a museum now that nobody really knows about. 